let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we start. Father, I thank you so much, God, for your love. And Lord, what that means for us and the, the example that that shows for us. And Lord, I, I pray even this morning as we look at that in 1 Corinthians and see how, how love culminates and works even among the body this morning. You just remind us of the love of Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, Americans love a good slogan, right? I mean, come on now. Y'all love a good slogan. I love good slogans. I love great commercials. How many of y'all spent more, you paid more attention when the commercials came on during the Super Bowl than you did the game this year? I did. I did. It's not that way every year, but the last probably many years, as long as the Patriots in there, I'm paying more attention to the commercials than I am the game. And if you're a Patriots fan, I do not apologize at all. All right? Um, no, since the invention of newspapers, marketing, and advertising departments, they have, they have turned us into walking slogan jukeboxes. I'm going to prove it to you. You're going to help me, all right? I'm going to read a slogan. You're going to tell me where it goes with. Where's the beef? Wendy's, Wendy's right? I know this group over here, y'all, you know, that, that whoop, went right over your head, right? I'm, I'm coming to you. All right, I'm a, we're going to go way back. I may have to hit some of you guys and some of y'all back here. Um, bet you, oh, no, sorry. A little dabble, do you? Brill cream. All right, awesome. Bet you can't eat just one. Breakfast of champions. Melts in your mouth, not in your hand. All right, let's hit the under 40s. Happiest place on earth. I'm loving it. Taste the rainbow. Don't be evil. Uh huh. Google. Did y'all know that's Google's slogan? Don't be evil. Yeah, I don't think they're succeeding. All right. Um, look, and it's getting stranger. These slogans are getting stranger because in the advent of uh, social media and now people watching more Hulu and Netflix and paying the extra $2 so you don't have to watch commercials. And if you don't do that, you should. I do. And, um, Companies, they're, they're getting creative now. You know, they're doing these intentional viral videos and, and there's memes that are popping up and uh, funny Twitter feeds like, like Wendy's and Moon Pie. If you do Twitter, those are two really funny. I don't know who does their, their social media stuff. They're really funny. And, and I'm sure now at this point you're asking yourselves, where in the world is he going with this? But I am headed somewhere. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because what we're going to look at are a few first century slogans that the actual church of Corinth developed, all right? This is not new to marketing. It's not even new to Christianity. In the first century, the church of Corinth had developed these little slogans into these. They'd taken theology and tried to break it down into a few words. And what we're going to look at today is the dangers of what I'm calling t-shirt theology, where you take a theology, you turn it into six or seven words and throw it on a t-shirt and you wear it proudly. And, um, and why that, and look at the book of 1 Corinthians to see why that's not always a great idea. Now, the church of Corinth is extremely hard for a group like this to comprehend and sympathize with, okay? Because if you read First and Second Corinthians, without having an understanding of who they were and where they came from, you're going to have a lot of moments where you ask yourselves, what in the world were these people thinking? Because I know when I read 1 Corinthians, I ask myself that all the time. 
And you, it is hard to sympathize with this group because if you really want to understand them, the, these believers, and why Paul spent more time teaching them than any other group of believers in the New Testament with patience, you, you kind of have to understand where they came from. Because in the book of just 1 Corinthians, not even including 2 Corinthians, we find believers engaging in religious prostitution. They've broken into factions. They've marginalized the poor within their own congregation. They've ignored and or justified a man having an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. They've turned the Lord's Supper into a party for the rich, literally. And certain ones of them had even begun rethinking their stance on the physical bodily resurrection of Christ and therefore the bodily resurrection of humanity at the second coming. And Paul, like I said, Paul spent more time and energy on this church body than any other church recorded in the New Testament. He wrote four letters to the Corinthian church and visited them three times, and that is twice what we have recorded for any other church in the New Testament. But before you start throwing stones at these people saying, what were they thinking? I mean, just my little list there is enough for that. I think it's really important to understand where they came from. What was Corinth like? How had they been raised? Okay, Corinth, if you're not familiar with it, it was a port town. And historically, it even rivaled Rome and Alexandria. Probably population-wise, third of those three cities. But it's been compared, historians compare it to simultaneously being Los Angeles, New York, and Las Vegas all at the same time of the ancient world, right? I don't know what ancient slot machines look like, but um, this city was made up of freed, freed slaves that were actually sent to Corinth by Rome, retired soldiers, urban laborers, wealthy shipping merchants, like I said, it was a port city. It was also filled with traveling sailors who were on leave and traveling tradesmen. And it was interesting because it was a Greek city with a Roman culture, with a little bit of Greek culture still holding on. Because in Roman fashion, it prized high culture. And today, in our context, that would be like opera and weird art, where you don't really know if it's a painting or not. That would be high culture. Um, and, but also in Greek fashion, they really prized logic and reason, and, you know, the Plato-Socrates, let's have an argument. But the other problem with Corinth is it was an extremely wicked city. An ancient historian once wrote that to engage in pleasure and luxury was to live like a Corinthian. In fact, there was actually an ancient saying that spread around Rome that would, like, if you were going to party, you would shout, live like a Corinthian. Like, let's party like it's 1999. Or if you're under 30, let's get lit, all right? Um, and uh, in the city of Corinth, there were 16 major pagan religions, each, each employing thousands of temple prostitutes. Many of them were actually carryovers from the ancient Aphrodite worship, of a, and the statue of Aphrodite still stood in Corinth at the time. In fact, Immorality was actually part of these pagan worship services. If a Corinthian was written into a play in Rome, they were always portrayed as drunk. That's the type of city and culture that the people of Corinth had grown up under and been influenced by and raised under. And you can see why Paul worked so hard at adjusting this crazy immoral worldview 
and trying to bring it back to, to, and help them understand what it meant to live as a Christian. Now, honestly, there was no Christian history for them to look at. This is new. This is like 50 A.D. So the church had broken into four factions. And these factions had developed their own little sayings. And Paul's going to address these sayings. In fact, these fashions, I, I, I break them into parties. I think of them kind of like in-house church political parties. First, there was the Paul party. You, you'll see these in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, but we're not going to read those. Um, and we can take some, make some educated guesses on kind of what happened and caused these divisions, these parties to happen. The Paul party was the ones who in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, you know, where Paul says, I became your father. They followed Paul verbatim. He was the one that planted the church. He was the one they looked up to. He was the one they listened to. Whatever Paul said, that's what's true. In fact, this, church, this, this party, the Paul party, likely was contra-gospel, which would have offended Jewish Christians in Corinth. It was the party that attempted to reject any rules and regulations especially those that looked anywhere even similar to Judaism. Their slogans would have been, all things are lawful for me, and food for the stomach and stomach for food. We're going we're to break these down in a minute. Then we had the Apollos party. This was the logic party. This was the, because Paul, Apollos was highly respected. He was very intellectual. He'd been discipled by Aquila and Priscilla. Um, and, and Apollos was a, a great guy. And, but some scholars think that, that was, this was the intellectual party that focused on wisdom and logic and eloquence. Their slogan was, we possess all knowledge. Or we all possess knowledge. We don't possess all knowledge. Um, and then we had the Peter party. Now, the Peter party represented Jewish Christianity. Some scholars believe that there was, that there was a... That those who had, who had come through Judaism and, and kind of gone through the, the mechanics of what it meant to be a Jew, of basically just following the laws and, and following the holidays, when the Holy Spirit came, they had this, this fresh revival of what they had been just kind of a dead religion for them, and they still wanted to hold on to what happened in Acts 1 and 2 um, and maintain some semblance of Judaism. And there slogan that we'll see in 1 Corinthians was, it's good not to touch a woman. And then we had the Christ party. Now, this is an interesting party because this is the party that rejected hero worship. They weren't Paul. They weren't Apollos. They weren't Peter. We're Christ. But don't get to, don't give them too much credit just because they threw Christ in their name. Um, they, res- they represented the super-spiritual elitism. This was your hyper-spiritual God-talkers. You-, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that you can't have a conversation with them without them saying, oh, bless you, Lord, brother, but yeah, you know, you're trying to talk about, you know, where do you want to eat lunch? And they're, you know, like, no, no, and I'm not, no, 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 I'm not a Bible study lesson. I just want to know where you want to eat lunch, right? Perhaps no human leadership was sufficient or adequate, this would be the group where, um, this would be the modern day version. This would be the no creed but Christ group. Have y'all heard of somebody say that? No creed but Christ. And usually they only bring that up when you kind of press them on something you think may be theologically off. No, I don't agree with any man, just Christ, right? Um, that's that group. Or the biblicist group. Y'all know the biblicist? You know, I don't wear labels, I'm a biblicist, right? 
Y'all know, y'all know that group. Some of y'all may be in that group. I don't know. Um, if you are, again, I don't apologize. All right. Can you believe that even in first century Corinth, Christians were already reducing theology to slogans? Now, we've done that. We've done that. All right? I'm going to give you some slogans. You're going to help me finish them. All right? Once saved. Right? Huh? See? Like that. Y'all knew it immediately. Christians aren't perfect, just love the sinner. All right. Justification is God part. Sanctification is, yeah, thankfully y'all don't know that one because that's terrible theology. <laughs> Sanctification's our part. God can't be in the presence of sin. That's one that I, I hear pop up sometimes. All those, all those are actually, y'all remember the one from the 80s, God is my co-pilot? You remember that one? I always just look at that and go, wouldn't you want God to be the pilot? <laughs> you know? I mean, right? I'm like, oh, I'm sure when you said that, you thought, oh, that'll make a great bumper sticker. Um, it did. Uh, just bad theology. All right. These slogans look good on T-shirts, all right? They look good on bumper stickers. I, there's actually a website. I was, looking, I was trying to find a bunch of, like, slogans and stuff. There's a website that's got, I did not know there were that many Christian T-shirt slogan things. I mean, not that I didn't. I just never looked. It was amazing. Thousands of these T-shirts on this one particular website. But what I want us to look at is these slogans from 1 Corinthians and see the origin and how dangerous this t-shirt theology can be. Because these theological slogans, they start innocently enough. Um, they, they fall into the they meant well category, which if you watch the Goldbergs, you know that's the worst thing you can say about somebody is that they meant well. Um, if you don't watch the Goldbergs, then it's not funny and I should have left it out. But all right. <laughs> they attempt to take these complex sayings and turn them into something easy to remember because it's helpful to be able to remember theology. But the problem is they become like paintings. Another slogan for paintings is a picture paints a thousand words, right? Who chooses the words? You do as an individual, all right? That's what makes art art, right? It's why I can throw up a painting that everybody in the room hates and I happen to love it. They're one of my favorite paintings of all time. I've never shown it to anybody that liked it other than me. All right? It's, it's weird. It's kind of like I got a little Picasso-y thing going on, and I, I don't know. It's, it's weird art. But, uh, yeah, but theology's not art, okay? It's truth, and it's specific, and it's clear. And if these pithy slogans, the problem is when these slogans, we can insert our own individual bias and prejudice and thoughts into these slogans and make them mean whatever they mean. For example, once saved, always saved. If I, if I had you write down what that means in here, I'd probably get however many people in here, 115, 20 different definitions of what that means. So let's look at 1 Corinthians. Uh, starting in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12. Now, the interesting thing about this, all things are lawful for me, is that that's something Paul actually said and actually taught. The other interesting thing is, if most of your translations, that will be in quotes. The reason it's in quotes is Paul is actually quoting the Corinthian church. They've taken this thing Paul said about the law and freedom and Christian freedom and 
brought it down to this all things are lawful for me slogan. And Paul throws it back at him and says, no, I know you're saying this. But let me clear this up for you. See, Paul redirects the slogan from the Corinthian church back to them. He concedes that, yes, all things are lawful for you. And yes, I taught in Colossians 2 and Galatians 5 that Christ has set us free from the bondage of the law. And yes, I've taught that spirituality must not be confused with this just long list of rules and regarding what Christians eat and drink and, and touch. And in these matters, believers have liberty of conscience. Yes, I taught that. But you took things I said and turned them into this nice little slogan to justify your continuing in sexual immorality. Because he points out that it says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial for the body, for the church. And then he says, flee sexual immorality. Paul shifts the focus here from the individual to the church body. All things are lawful for me, individual. But then he goes on and says, I will not be mastered by anything. I will not give into lust. I will not give into these desires that consume me. And then he goes on to explain to them that, yes, these appetites are good and wholesome in the proper context of marriage. Yet the Corinthians had become victims of their own desires because they had grown up under these pagan temples that had prostitutes uh, if, as part of the worship service. And that's what, as far as religion goes, that's what they thought existed. So they found a way to justify by taking what Paul said and condensing it into this little saying, saying, all things are lawful for me, therefore... I can go out and do what I want with my body because it's my body. That's why when he brings up, in the next slogan he brings up is when he says, food is for the body, verse, verse 13. Food is for the body and the body is for food. Now this slogan's a good one. The reason is it's, it has this subtle, sly genius in it. It would make Don Draper proud, right? If you insert pleasure in the place of food, you get a better understanding of what they were actually trying to say with this slogan. Pleasure is for the body and the body is for pleasure. And Paul concedes that, yeah, there is some truth to this slogan. Pleasure is not bad. God did create our bodies for pleasure within the context of marriage. But they are created for more than that. But Paul again says, you've taken something intricate and thought out and simplified it just in order to justify bad behavior. If people misapply Christian liberty to justify sin, they're going to soon find out that they're no longer free. This freedom that they're declaring, this Christian freedom, all things are lawful for me, is actually going to be the very things that brings them back under bondage because now they're back into bondage to sin. Now, this was the Paul party. The Peter party thinks they've solved the issue um, of those who can't control their appetites. They say, let's just make a rule. We love rules. Rules are easy. All we have to do is just not break the rule, right? Here's the rule. Let's put it on a t-shirt so everybody remembers it. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. There, done. Cut off. That way nobody's going to mess up. Don't break the rule. We now have a rule. Now, the issue is this statement isn't just about engaging with temple prostitutes. It it actually means no one. Don't touch any woman, period, including your wife. But now we have a rule, so it's off the table. Easy peasy. We don't even have to worry about it anymore. Rule stated, rule followed. 
Paul said in certain contexts, it's true that it's good not to touch a woman, but not in the context of marriage. In the context of marriage, it should be the opposite. You, you take this too far. Your slogan doesn't work in every situation. Look at chapter 7 and see how Paul corrects their misapplication of his teaching. Verse 1, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And see, that's in quotes, direct quote from the letter written to Paul. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come again together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. See, they, they took this teaching and they, let's make a rule, all right? We love rules. We all love rules. Rules are easy. If you break the rule, God or broke the rule, please forgive me. I won't break the rule again. But that is not what Christian freedom is. Chapter 8, we encounter another slogan. This slogan's by the Apollos party. We all possess knowledge. Look in chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Paul says this knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know. What he's saying there is if anyone claims to have all the answers, all they've proven is they really don't know what they're talking about. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating a food offered to idols, we know that as an idol, an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, quotes, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol." And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. What you eat is not going to earn you brownie points with God. Clean eating is not going to get you closer to God. Any more than cleanliness is not next to godliness. Another slogan, right? That's not in the Bible. Verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in that idol's temple, will he not be encouraged in his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat, lest I should make my brother stumble. Now, what was happening here is the Corinthians were actually eating meals in these pagan temples for multiple reasons. One, it was super cheap, all right? They'd been sacrificed meat, and, and at the particular time Paul wrote this, there was a famine, so you could eat cheap during a famine. Uh, but what's this knowledge? What, we all have possessed knowledge. I mean, this was another little slogan. The knowledge is that there's only one God, and meat sacrificed to an idol, in reality, is just meat. 
It's just meat. There's no, there's no Aphrodite. We, you know, slaughtered this cow and cooked it to Aphrodite. There is no Aphrodite. This was true. Idol, an idol that didn't exist. The same concept taught in Romans 14. However, it's, it's just the, it wasn't just an act of eating that was being addressed here. It was actually an act of individualistic arrogance that was damaging the body. Particularly those who didn't understand that those pagan gods were just statues. They weren't really gods. And, and the other thing going on here was this knowledge. They were arrogant about it. Knowledge puffed you up. It made you arrogant. You run across this type of arrogance all the time, I'm sure. In fact, you may have engaged in your own theological conversations or found yourself being like this. I know I have. Paul doesn't dismiss the importance of knowledge in chapter 8. That's not what's happening here. He agrees, yes, you have knowledge, and knowledge is good, knowledge is, and, your, and your knowledge is true. You do possess knowledge. You do understand, and it's good that you understand, that there are no gods and that meat is just meat. But you're not helping the church. It isn't helping you live better as a Christian. It's not spurning you to service. It's not causing you to want to proclaim the gospel more. It's not wanting, causing you to want to love people more. It's just making you full. And your knowledge is making you arrogant. You know some things, but because of the way you handle your knowledge, you just prove in reality you know nothing. See, Paul corrects the inconsistencies in these slogans in much of the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. You can read the rest of the book on your own. I'm definitely not going to read it this morning. However, there's one recurring theme that sums up all of these corrections. In fact, the entire book of 1 Corinthians is where Paul addresses an issue and corrects that issue. That's what the whole book of 1 Corinthians is about. There's an inserted shift in the language in every one of these issues that goes from individual to corporate. Each correction shifts from the individual to the corporate. He corrects individual attitudes and says, this is, you have this, and it has some truth to it, but it's not actually helping the body. Yeah, this slogan might work for you as an individual, but it doesn't help the church. That's the underlying theme in the entire book. In fact, you see this best summed up in 1 Corinthians 13. Flip over there real quick, and y'all know this passage. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul begins, and he's a little facetious here at the beginning because he knows he doesn't speak all tongues and doesn't have angels, uh, doesn't know angelic languages. He says, but if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so does to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Look back at that. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have love, don't have love, I'm a clanging symbol. I wish I had one up here. You'd see how annoying it is. Those aren't clanging symbols, those are regular symbols. Clanging symbol is a broke symbol. 
If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith. Now, did Paul understand all mysteries, all knowledge and have all faith? No, he didn't. But he said, even if I have all of these things and I don't have love, I've gained nothing. If I give away everything I have and go and put myself to be burned at the stake as a martyr, but I don't have love, I've gained nothing. The love here is charity, and it means love in action. It's not love the emotion. It's love in action. This love is directed at serving the body. All these slogans failed at the exact same point. When applied individually, they can mean anything. And they all have failed to have a love for the body. They were all about the self. They took biblical wisdom, they turned it into human wisdom, and in turn made it about everything but the edification of the church. They all made it about themselves. Yes, all things are lawful. Do all things benefit the body? Yes, it's good for a man not to touch a woman who's not his wife. Yes, we all have knowledge, but is that knowledge being used for edification? Or is it, is it loving the church? Is it loving, used for loving Christ? Or is it used to promote our own individual soapboxes or interests? See, the Corinthian slogans failed because they were partially true, but they, they lacked focus on the body as a whole. They were about justifying individual behaviors at the expense of the church. Now, what would happen today if Christ had done that? What would happen if Christ, if Christ had that same attitude? I want us to close by rereading a portion of Philippians 2. Because I want us to see what Christ did here as he humbled himself. Philippians 2, 1 says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do we do that? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Love in action. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, love in action. Jesus took on the point of death, death on the cross, love in action. Christ did that, and that's our example we should follow. He didn't come to serve, to be served, but to serve. The ultimate sacrifice of individual desires. We are called to serve one another. The body of believers at NBC, that's what we've been called to do. Not to boil our theology down to cliches that allow us to excuse ourselves from things that are related to the body. And I, I've been wondering if I should say this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. And if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. But 
there's, a, there's, a, there's been a, a saying that I've noticed over the last maybe 20 years has become an excuse. And it's good, and it's got a lot of truth to it. But man, we use it as an excuse sometimes to get out of doing things we want to do in regards to church. Can anybody guess what it is? John, can you guess what it is? I bet you could. All right. I have to spend time with family. Family time. Y'all know why we use that? Now, family time is good. Family is important. All right? I don't put family above church in my list of order. God, family, church. That, that would be my order. But we use that. I've used it. I know some of y'all have used it, because when you use it, you think we don't know that that's what you're doing, but we know. You really don't want to do something. It's like, oh, no, family time today, right? That's, and I'm just using that as an example. Yes, you should spend time with your families. You should block out time to set a time, family time. I am not talking about not focusing on your family. I'm just using that as an example. Sometimes we use these little things because we know nobody's going to give us. It's like saying, I have to work. Oh, man, boy, I hate that for you. Yeah. Go to work. Nobody... Psh- conversation over, right? Hey, man, I want, you to, I want you to go to the men's Bible study this Saturday morning. Oh, man, I can't. That's my family time, right? Yeah, but then I hear like a week later, your kids were at Disneyland and you were at home, you know, watching cartoons or something. I, I mean, and, and I'm only bringing that up, look, look, seriously, I'm not knocking family time. I'm knocking the excuses that sometimes we come up with that are true and good and pure in, in, at its core, but we use them as excuses to not participate in serving the body. Don't allow t-shirt theology to hinder your service, to hinder your evangelism, to hinder your walk with Christ. Um, don't allow these, these, these things where we take, we take these, these deep theological truths and we try and shrink them down to something that's not actually, it's got truth in there. It's true, mostly true. Can it be mostly true? Is that possible? Can it be partially true? Yeah, I guess you can. Um, remember that the book of 1 Corinthians is all about correcting individual thinking for thinking within the body, within serving the body. Love in action tied to charity. Love, charity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for Paul's